the most common decision we make is to not make a decision yet. And when we make a decision, whether it's good or bad, at least it's motion. And that motion is really what moves us forward. Ironically, whether that motion is in the right or wrong direction, at least it's giving us some better visibility of the terrain around us and helping us learn. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Today's episode centers on an activity where most of us are really good at going slow, perhaps too good at going slow, and that's decision-making, an activity that often unfolds at wildly different speeds. Sometimes we make snap judgments in the blink of an eye, and other times we agonize and strategize about making a choice. We get so obsessed with making the quote-unquote right decision that all we end up doing is procrastinating. We wait and wait and wait. But what exactly are we waiting for? A sign? A piece of information? An insight? And does all that waiting really do us any good? To help me suss out what matters when it comes to making good decisions, I recruited none other than my old boss, Scott Belsky, with whom I worked at Behance and 99U for many, many years. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Scott is an investor, author, an entrepreneur who co-founded Behance, a network for creatives to showcase their work and get hired. And he led the company as CEO for seven years until its acquisition by creative giant Adobe for $150 million. When we were colleagues, I saw Scott make thousands of little decisions every single day. And he rarely seemed conflicted about it. One thing I always admired about him was his almost preternatural ability to contemplate a choice, make a decision, and then move on with very little fuss. So he seemed like an obvious choice for a conversation about the mysterious mechanics of decision-making. Among other topics, we dig into why instinct matters more than data, particularly when it comes to key creative decisions, how to manage the different decision-making styles of introverts and extroverts, and why executing shyly, as Scott describes it, almost always leads to poor decisions. For language-sensitive listeners, I should note that there is an F-bomb or two in the section after the commercial break. Now let's dive in. You know, I was thinking about one of the biggest challenges for many people of decision-making isn't actually the decision itself. It's actually sort of after you make the decision and trying not to, you know, trying to just move on from it and trying not to revisit it mm -hmm. and sort of constantly reconsider whether or not you've actually made the right decision. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you today was, of course, we worked together in the past. And one of the things that I always really admired about you was that you were extremely good at sort of, you know, taking time out of the rush to really focus on something, make the decision, and then, you know, kind of move on very cleanly. So I'm curious, you know, kind of how you think about kind of moving on from decisions. Well, there are a few thoughts that come to mind on that. I mean, first of all, there's the uh, kind of the sunk cost mentality that when a decision is made and there's a cost associated with that decision, you just swallow it and move on um, rather than perseverate over it. I really feel like when a team sees a leader uh, make a decision on their behalf, it is tolling to the team to see that leader continue to agonize and question whether that decision should or should not have been made. And so 
if you can actually cut your losses quickly, it enables others to do the same. Uh, but that being said, when a decision is made, it actually doesn't mean anything unless people actually execute and act as if the decision stands. What you find in most organizations is that there is just kind of a regression to the mean of what what everyone was doing before, and behavior is like a, a rubber band. It just kind of snaps back to where it was unless you kind of hold it in place. And um, and that's why I think a big part of a, a great decision is also the merchandising and the continuous reinforcement that follows. You just have to keep reinforcing not only the decision itself, but the reasons why, so that people actually believe it and execute it. I, I can remember many times where a decision was made and people kind of nodded heads because they wanted to get out of the meeting um, and avoid the friction or conflict, people were conflict averse or whatever. And then you kind of goes back to business as usual. And, um, and so the, the decision is the start of the execution of a great decision. So what do you think about that, though, on a personal level? Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a perspective from sort of a business organizational level. But if you think about it, so let's say there's a lot of listeners who are, um, you know, working independently or who are freelancers or creatives, right? And so um, there's sometimes in that setting, maybe with a client, but they're also frequently a setting where they're just with themselves. So how does that play out for you in, I guess, a more personal context, um, you know, when you don't necessarily have to try to, um, you know, be a leader for someone else, but more, you know, be a leader for yourself or just, yeah. you know, not become anxious yourself or worry too much. Sure. It's, um, yeah, I, th I think about that a lot actually when I'm writing because I will make a drastic change, like I'll just cut a section or I'll move something around and then I will be in that same mode of, oh my gosh, do I think about for the next few hours if I made a mistake or not? Or do I just kind of take it? You know, it just, this just happened. And it just like the first image that comes into mind is an artist kind of deciding to make a, a, a bold brushstroke. And, um, and where did that come from? It came from the gut. You know, it came from the experience you've had, not over the last two seconds as you thought about the decision, but from the last 20 or 30 years as you've been in the, in the, in the discipline. Um, and so I, 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 what I do, and maybe this is just me rationalizing away my fear, but what I tell myself is that the decisions that I am making, even though they feel haphazard are actually the result of a lifetime of my own personal experience. So whether it's a decision to date someone or to get married or to, um, you know, to move to a different city, you know, any of these big decisions that I've faced in my life, I try to remove the pressure and the concern that I was wrong um, by just saying, hey, even though this felt like a quick decision and maybe you could have done more diligence, the truth is it took your life to have the data, subconscious instinct and whatever else played in to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's some... Um research around snap decisions and sort of this this idea of more to, more sort of intuitive knowing. And I think a lot of times when you're making a decision, you can get a little bit overwhelmed if there's so much data. You know, maybe there's 20 pieces of data or 100 pieces of data or even more that you could consider in making the decision. But the, um, I guess, research shows we're sort of evolved to um, really just be able to sort of pinpoint and pull out maybe only the most important key factors, you know, two or three, or even just one piece of information that kind of overrides yeah. everything else. 
I think it's a, um, I remember when I graduated business school, which is something I seldom talk about because I didn't find business school so helpful. Um, but, but there were, you know, two years of case studies and, uh, and, and, and classes on how to analyze data and use stats and everything else to make decisions. And essentially that is what a graduate degree in business is, is it's a, it's a education in making decisions. Um, and, uh, based on what you've seen before, what's happened before, I mean, that's the case method is, is kind of replaying other stories that you didn't really experience firsthand in your head to help you make better decisions. And I remember the Dean of the business school at the graduation sort of made this comment along the lines of in his sort of goodbye talk to us that the best advice he could really give us is ultimately when it came down to important decisions to forget everything we've learned and listen to our gut. And I thought, gosh, like that's a good use of, you know, 50 or $80,000, whatever I've paid on a, on an M for an MBA. But it is so true. I think that especially when it comes to making a decision that will distinguish you from the pack, inherently, the obvious data is not there to back that decision up or else everyone would have already made it. So if you're in the world of creativity and you are trying to inherently just stand out and do something different, think of a new solution to an old problem, then you have to rely on gut to some degree more so than data. And that's why, by the way, some of the greatest innovators in different fields are the ones that have the least experience in those fields because they're, they're, they're in some ways in the early stages of problem solving, they are wonderfully naive. Yeah, and I feel like, certainly for me personally, I don't know if this is true for you, but every terrible decision I've ever made is when I ignored my intuitive feeling or I ignored my gut feeling. And at this point, I, I now try to never, ever do yeah. that. But if you had, is, is that kind of what you feel like is at the core of when you've made bad decisions? I think that bad decisions were really the ones that I executed shyly and therefore didn't really didn't really um, swing through, you know, on something. It was just like I said, okay, I want to do this, but I don't know. And then I hedge myself. And then before you know it, it's sort of like a half-ass, uh, you know, step in the wrong direction or the sideways, you know. Um, and it's, and it's, uh, and then it's like, okay, well, it, I like the, the mentality that you know, the most, the most common decision we make is to not make a decision yet. And that when we make a decision, whether it's good or bad, at least it's motion. And that motion is really what moves us forward. Ironically, whether that motion is in the right or wrong direction, at least it's giving us some better visibility of the terrain around us and helping us learn. So I am an advocate for making decisions strongly and being able to turn around in a heartbeat if you have to. I really like the phrase executing shyly. It's very interesting. What, so what do you think is, is the opposite? Executing boldly? Executing confidently? Executing boldly is burning, burning the boat, right? And saying, this is the decision we've made. We are going to give it our best. We are going to explore the full terrain of possibility associated with the trajectory we've chosen to take. And, um, and if we're wrong, we'll know for a fact that we were wrong, and then we will make a better decision next time. Executing shyly is the opposite of this. It's saying, hey, let's tiptoe, let's hedge ourselves. In a, in, a, in, a, in a product, for example, it's incrementalism. 
it's saying, okay, things aren't working. So let's keep making little tweaks and little tests and whatever. And you may actually never discover the new object model of a product or the new, um, the new country or state you need to live in or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the bold solution is to the problem you're facing may never be uncovered because you're not willing to actually execute a decision boldly. Yeah. There's a, um, a phrase that I like that's, uh, plan the work and work the plan mm. um, that I think about a lot. Because one of the challenges I think for me creatively has been that um, it's how long right, how long do you stick to that decision boldly? So you mm-hmm. make the decision, you decide you're going to do a certain thing, and then um, you know, do, do you just sort of stick to that relentlessly? Or when do you know when to kind of course correct? And that's always, I think, particularly with the creative process or you know, any type of product development process, that's the big challenge is how long do you kind of stick to your guns? And then when do you, you know, kind of figure out that you're going to, you're going to change course? Because as you say, every decision, you get more information, right? That's the, yep. That informs future decisions. And I think it kind of comes back to that notion of having strong opinions weekly held in the sense that you can make a very strong decision, you can execute it boldly, but then you can suddenly realize something and make another strong decision and execute that boldly versus feeling like you're stuck with the decision you've made and that you're only entitled to one bold decision, you know, in some period of time. I, I deeply admire companies and people who can make a really strong decision and then make another one and another one. And they don't feel as if they're, you know, running out of the ability to make bold course corrections, because in truth, you know, that's, I think it's the volatility that brings us to a great place. It's not the, it's not being safe. I wanted to sort of shift to thinking about different decision-making styles. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, one thing you see a lot in the workplace in particular is, you know, sort of introverts and extroverts make decisions in different ways, I think. So extroverts sort of like to debate ideas and think out loud and kind of do a sort of collaborative type of decision making. And then they make the decision, you know, sort of live with other people. And then they're like, great. And they yeah. move on. Whereas I think introverts are a bit more like they want to kind of retreat, be on their own, you know, think about things alone and then come to a conclusion and then yep. maybe reconvene. I'm curious how you've kind of seen different decision-making styles play out in the workplace. And, you know, I think sometimes people aren't conscious that different people have different styles. And so you get these kind of clashes. Yeah. It's a great, it's a, it's a great question. And I think when I think of myself, I think I have a little bit of both in the sense that part of my brain is always constant, constantly processing uncertainty. And there's this constant processing this, you know, 10% of my RAM that I do attribute to the decisions that I make ultimately. Um, It's a very expensive process to run because you're never truly present anywhere. And, uh, and that's one of the things that, uh, that you accept when you embark on entrepreneurship or on any sort of journey where there's, you know, high risk and reward and your, your soul is in it. Um, In a team setting, I am the type of decision maker that loves throwing straw mans out. Now, this is really great for some folks and not for others, because straw mans can be wildly wrong. A straw man is basically saying, hey, so like maybe what about this? Like we can just do this and this and this and this. We can put this here and da, 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 da. you know, you just kind of go through it and you just throw it out there. 
and people can just debate or chip away at it or totally disagree or whatever, uh, I find that to be a very productive way of advancing a discussion towards a decision. Some folks, when you do that, really recoil because they don't agree or because it's not their process to just throw something out there without the data and without a you know process to get to it and whatever. And, uh, and so as the leader, when you're managing a group of people, some of whom are like me and throw out straw mans, and some of who are really like the sit back, you know, deep thinkers don't want to speak until they're 100% sure, you have to, like a conductor, you know, manage the orchestra a little bit, get the straw mans out there, pull in the people who are quiet, and then they'll regret, retreat again, and then go back to the straw mans, and you, you just kind of, you know, bring this... Um, bring this cacophony of, of, of different views, you know, to some, to some level of sense. It's time to take a quick break to thank the sponsors who make the show possible now. But stay tuned because after the jump, Scott and I debate when it's a good idea to make a decision quickly and when it might be best to let it marinate a little more. Also, how you can align your personal decision-making style, be it slow or be it fast, with your career path. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Personally, I find it hard to take action on my ideas unless I have some accountability. A deadline, an audience, an expectation. Something or someone that makes it necessary to take action. And one of the easiest ways to quickly create some of that accountability is to go public, to go online. Establishing your domain name is, in a sense, a rite of passage. The way you plant a stake in the ground and say, here it is, this is my idea. And Hover makes the process of finding a domain that matches your passion super simple. Their streamlined search lets you choose from over 400 domain name extensions, and you can easily connect your new domain to a number of popular website builders with just a few clicks. But honestly, my favorite feature is Hover's straightforwardness. Their user interface is clean and easy to use, and they don't nag you with endless upsells at checkout. What you see is what you get a launchpad for your ideas. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. How do you think that plays out in terms of decision-making styles? So you've worked with, you know, tons of entrepreneurs, CEOs, vice presidents, as well as, you know, sort of the more, we'll say, traditionally creative types, designers, Mm -hmm. writers, illustrators. Do you feel like you see any differences in the way sort of maybe a more business-minded person versus a more sort of traditionally creative type of person makes decisions? There there are many different ways that people make decisions. I don't know if I would draw the line between people that are – in their own lives or in art projects versus at work. You know, I do think that people have the same tendency across the line in both camps. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, there are some folks at the extreme end of the spectrum who are just paralyzed in making a decision until they do all the research that they can think of and get all of the data and agonize and agonize and agonize. And then there are other folks on the other end of the spectrum who just, snap gut whatever they're thinking at the moment and actually if you catch them at different moments even in the same day they might actually make an entirely different decision so where i fall in this is that i just go back to this belief that motion um, which is the result of making decisions over not 
uh, just illuminates more of the space of possibility. And that if you have the right culture and if you feel empowered to make another decision again, if you feel like you're on the wrong path, uh, that you can, that you can do so. So, you know, that, that's, that's where I stand on it. But I also do believe that there's a benefit in having both in a team. You know, that's what makes the right uh, balance. And that's, you know, that's really one of the greatest cases, I believe, for diversity in a team, too, is just the different approaches and the levels of sensibility and tolerance for ambiguity and, uh, and level of decisiveness and strong opinions versus weak opinions that are the result of different backgrounds, you know, the way that we're brought up and where we're from and how we think. I mean, these are the types of, uh, of roots that change the way we make decisions and, and, and have a voice, you know, in a, in, on a board. You know, if you have all of these, you know, sort of machismo gut making, you know, decision makers on a, on a, on a board, you know, whether they're female or male, uh, you're not going to have a good outcome. You just need to have that balance. There's some interesting research that um, shows, you know, essentially rather than thinking about making a decision for yourself, if you think about the advice that you would give a friend, Mm -hmm. that people tend to make better decisions because they feel sort of distanced from the decision. They call it kind of taking the outside perspective. Um, I'm curious if you ever think about decision making, I guess, in the context of sort of perspective taking or trying to distance yourself from it at all. Well, what I really do think a lot about is why I am afraid of making a certain decision. Um, I, I do try to pick apart the fear quotient from the, I mean, one of the most common sayings that I say to myself in my head <laughs> um, is do your fucking job. And uh, I say that when I have to fire somebody, when I have to confront somebody, when I have to have a difficult conversation with a partner about some sort of you know compensation that wasn't you know done properly, or some sort of a, you know um, financial aspect that wasn't honored, or some ethical issue or whatever, and I start to say, oh, like maybe I should just give them the benefit of the doubt, or should I just wait on it, or whatever, and then it's always like the do your fucking job, echoing in my head that just makes me confront it. When what about when? you get stuck. So for me, it's funny. I find that I always get stuck when I can't make a decision or I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. It's almost always when I'm sitting in front of my computer trying to make an important decision. And mm-hmm. if I go for a long walk, somehow that kind of opens everything up and usually I'm able to solve the problem. Do you find that you have sort of um, specific times when you get stuck and you know things that you do to kind of get unstuck when you're sort of spinning your wheels when you're trying to make a decision? I don't think my problem is getting stuck. I think my problem is making a decision too quickly because I don't want to deal with it. So, uh, and I think it's equally as big of a problem. Sometimes when I'm driving and I have an idea for something and I can't write it down, I get, I get start to like really dwell on remembering it and perseverating on like, am I going to forget it? Am I going to keep restating it in my head until I get to a place where I can write it down? And actually, I end up learning that the, the fact that I could not write it down forced me to evolve it further than I would have. Because if I had just written it down right away, it would have been a much simpler construct of what it ended up becoming. And, I, and, I, and then I say to myself, wow, like if you just actually force yourself to sit with things before making the decision, which in this case was writing something down and forgetting about it, you may get to a better place. And so what I 
the artificial constraint that I have to put on myself is to actually really think about it longer than I need to, or longer than I think I need to, just to give myself a chance to uh, have it incubate a little bit and you know germinate into something else. So that's my problem. And I know other folks say, well, I get paralyzed and can't make a decision. So I think there are both ends, two ends of the spectrum, neither of which is a great place to live. <laughs> yeah, when you raise an interesting um, idea, which I was thinking about as the sort of uh, making decisions quickly versus making decisions wisely, mm-hmm. which I think is always really the biggest challenge. Is there anyone that you have ever worked with that you felt like really struck that balance well? There are people I know who I think are very wise decision makers. I subscribe to the quick one, the quick approach, because I think that it's more realistic. I think that making a very wise decision, it just, it's, it's, it's almost asking for too much. How can you know where you really need to end up versus just trying and triangulating and then getting there? Now I recognize that some disciplines and some companies and you know and certain certain decisions you 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 have to be wise because it's just it is such a major major decision that you cannot triangulate around after you make it because it's just way too costly and uh whether it's I don't know major questions like let's let's bet the whole company on the iPhone or I don't know you know questions Decisions that have been made in the past by certain companies, gosh, yeah, you're right. Like they need to be extraordinarily wise and informed and carefully made. I think my expertise is more on the on the quick iterative decisions with constant triangulation and willingness to step back to where you were and try again um, that I subscribe to. Well, yeah, and it's a bit, um, in a way, it's more laid back, right? I think the you add an interesting layer to the idea of even trying to make a wise decision that that sort of just automatically adds on this layer of anxiety um, and introduces the idea that, you know, there's a huge chance that you would not make the correct decision. Right. And I think I struggled with this as a professional investor when I thought I would be a traditional venture capitalist for for the rest of my life with a firm that really only makes a small number of investments every year. Uh, and where you know I would be expected to make one every year or two, and it's uh, and that that idea versus the seed investing stuff I'd done previously, where any product and team that really struck my fancy and got me thinking a lot about where it could end up, I just said, okay, like I want to be helpful because even if it's not where we think it's going to go, I think I can help you triangulate, and that's the type of investor I found myself being successful as. And so it was a kind of rude awakening when I realized, oh, you know, this is actually later stage traditional venture capital is a is a business of wise decisions, not of quick decisions. Uh, although, it, ironically, you have to typically make them quickly. Um, but it's uh, you know it's 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 very different you know than what I what I what I was used to as an entrepreneur and a and a seed investor. And it was one of those nuances that I don't think is often talked about in, in investing because people just assume it's all the same playbook, and it's certainly not. Yeah, I think that's interesting, the idea that you, you know, might lean towards, you know, sort of being a quick decision maker or being a slow decider or a wise decider and that you need to actually align the type of work that you're doing with that strong suit. And if you get into a misalignment, that that actually can create a lot of frustration and 
anxiety. I think so. I think it, it definitely impacts the type of work you thrive in or the type of environment you thrive in. But I also should say that it's about who you surround yourself with. And I, I do think that you can be, you can, you can be successful with whatever tendency you have, either the quick or the wise, as long as you surround yourself with folks who you know, have the opposite tendency and, and add that to the mix. Uh, and if you respect the role that they play and they respect the role that you play, which is another key part, you know, some cultures are just one or the other. And, um, and, you know, a really wise and thoughtful long-term thinker decision maker may not thrive in a Facebook like culture, for example, where it's move fast and break things, you know, is their mantra, um, but may in a say pharmaceutical company where you green light a drug after years and years of research, and then you go through like a three to five year process to get it approved. So, um, so I think that there's, there are different environments. You're right. That help different tendencies, uh, or that in which, in which different tendencies thrive. Was there anything else that you wish I'd asked based on your preparations here that might be interesting to talk to? Let's see here. I mean, really, the thing that I think about a lot being a very quick, decisive person is a lesson I've learned in more recent years that sometimes the best conversations are the ones that have no answers and result in no decisions. I am very action-oriented, and I typically am the type of person that measures the value of a meeting with a decision that came out of it. And if no decision came out, it's like, okay, should this have even happened? Was this time well spent? Um, and I've, I've started to come to, I've come to learn that when conversations happen that are always a step function more interesting than the ones that preceded them, that's a good thing as well even if decisions didn't come out of them. What you don't want to do is get into a rhythm where every conversation seems like it's a replay and you're having the same conversation again and again and again. So I try to force myself to not always push for a decision in every conversation, recognizing that there is some magical um, accrued level of insight and understanding and chemistry you know, from a series of conversations that happen that are not decisive yet. Yeah, I really like that idea, actually, that um, it's an interesting rule of thumb for decision-making, the idea that the important thing is to just make sure you're always having a different conversation, which could involve making a decision and taking action so that you can then have a different conversation because you took action. But it also could be that you're just having a different conversation because you're evolving the conversation and letting it right. marinate a little bit more. So yeah. I like that as kind of a yardstick. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's sort of dating with the answer. You know, you're just kind of, you're kind of flirting and thinking about it. And, 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 but if the conversation continues to be more rich, it, it, I, I think the team can become more decisive, you know, as a result. The other thing that I, I just think a lot about is making sure that the, the problem is fully understood and, and, and framed uh, and well-framed by both you and the people that you're making the decision with. Because oftentimes decisions are made in times of anxiety and fear and, and, uh, and, and confusion. And it's very, very often that the, the problem isn't really fully understood either. And, uh, and so that's actually a real danger. And I actually wonder if how many, you know, how often, is a wrong decision tracked back to a misunderstanding of the problem in the first place. So I think one of the leader's roles is to consistently reframe the problem and also just make sure at the beginning, as I said earlier, everyone agrees with it. <laughs>
I've been thinking a lot lately about something that Issa Rae, the writer-director behind the wonderful HBO show Insecure, tweeted a few months ago. She said, I make excellent mistakes. I love the cognitive dissonance of that statement, the way it reframes failure, missteps, and just plain bad decisions as a positive thing. Like, good job, that was an A-plus mistake, you really nailed it. But it's true, we learn as much from our quote-unquote bad decisions as we do from the good decisions, and maybe more. That's why I love Scott's metaphor of thinking of decisions as motion. It's not about making a right decision or a wrong decision. It's just about making a decision. Because when you take action, when you continue to move forward, you reveal more of the terrain ahead, which gives you more perspective and helps you make the next decision. It's like you're sitting in a dark room and making a decision is like turning on a flashlight. Just the mere act of making a choice starts to illuminate the space and the possibilities that surround you. Good or bad, it shines a little more light on the way forward. When I join you again next week, I'll be in conversation with graphic journalist Wendy McNaughton, who you may know from such books as her own Meanwhile in San Francisco or her recent best-selling collaboration with Samin Nosrat, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Her work has an extremely distinctive style and approach, loose but lovely and heartfelt, that comes out of her background studying social work. The intention behind her artwork is very much about listening to and shining a light on unsung communities and individuals. We discuss the power of talking to strangers and what happens when you stop waiting for your turn and really listen to and empathize with the people around you. So be sure to tune in for that next Tuesday. And if you'd like me to drop you a line when a new episode comes out, you can sign up for the Hurry Slowly newsletter at the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. How would you describe the creative process in 10 words or less? Creative process in 10, 10 words or less is channeling your struggle, your genuine interest, and your initiative into a series of next steps. The show was produced by Matt Susich, who made a million little audio decisions which ultimately made this episode sound way better. Our theme song, Calm Revelation, was composed by Devin Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed this show, I would absolutely love it if you told a friend about it, perhaps one who's burning the candle at both ends. Or you can write us a review on iTunes. There's a link in the show notes. Every rating really does help us gain new listeners. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember to make haste slowly.